My, uh, my grandmother went home to be with Jesus on July 4th. Um, her, her death wasn't unexpected. Um, she had lived a long, full life. She was 90 years old. Her body was starting to shut down. She was ready to see Jesus. And so on the day before the 11th anniversary of my grandfather going home to Jesus, she also went home. She stepped into eternity with my mom sitting next to her in her room. My mom said she was here one breath, and then she was just gone. I got a phone call from my mom on July 4th at 7 a.m., letting me know that my grandmother had passed away. I was in the process of putting the last, literally the last bag in the back of my minivan as we were preparing to go on vacation to New Hampshire. And my mom knew we were going on vacation, so she says, Nate, you don't have to come. We're going to have the funeral this weekend, but you don't have to come out to Western Pennsylvania. And I said, Mom, don't be silly. So we went on vacation, taking a detour through Western Pennsylvania to go to New Hampshire. <laughs> yes, the boys were quite excited about that. Not really, but... But in my grandmother's church, a great Mennonite church in western Pennsylvania, there is a tradition of serving the family a delicious meal afterwards. It gives the family an opportunity to spend time together and, and uh, relate to each other after having celebrated um, my grandmother's going into heaven. And so I got to see and talk with extended, extended family members that I hadn't seen in years one of those conversations has continued to stick with me. First, like Michael said, my wife and I work on staff with Crew, a caring community passionate about connecting people to Jesus Christ. We're missionaries actually in the U.S., which is kind of a strange thing to say. Our particular role is to help reach the 2.3 million college students in New York and New England um, and connect them to Jesus. Well. I've been on staff with Crew for 18 years. The first thing my great aunt said to me when she saw me after my grandmother's funeral was, Nate, I want to partner with you as soon as my promised blessings come in. And as soon as I heard that, I kind of grinned inside and I thought to myself, how funny that my great aunt would say that. Because the last thing I remember her saying to me when I had last seen her face to face 18 years ago at a family reunion was, Nate, I want to partner with you when I have just a little bit more. And so it was funny to me that she, the, those two conversations bookended 18 years of my, me being in ministry. Now, I can easily look down on my great aunt and condemn her for not acting on what she said she wanted to do. But when it comes down to it, I'm really the same person. I'm really the same as she is. No matter how much I have, a little more would be nice. I will have enough when I am able to afford the next electronic gadget. Maybe for you, you will have enough when you can get that new outfit. Or you can move into that new house that has just a little bit more space. Or maybe you can buy lunch when you go to work instead of brown bagging it. Or maybe you can get that new car that you want. Or you can fill in the blank. Now, there's nothing essentially wrong with any of those
those things, with even wanting those things. But my guess is that your experience is a lot like mine. You get that new thing, you're satisfied for the moment, and then you find yourself wanting the next big thing. How much is enough? Is my life about accumulating things for myself and my family? Do you want to get off that treadmill known as getting the next big thing? Well, today we're going to see that Jesus wants us to experience more, to experience more than just getting the next big thing. We're going to see that in the life of Caleb in Joshua chapter 14 and 15. We'll actually look at Joshua 14, verse 6. But before we go there, or as you're turning there, if you have a Bible, or as you're iPhoning it there, um, first let me give you a brief history of Israel up to today, up to this passage. As you might know, the, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God miraculously stepped into their lives and pulled them out through a series of miracles and a man named Moses. And then God miraculously led them through a desert, providing miraculously for them as they traveled to where modern-day Israel is. When the people arrived at the Jordan River, which is the eastern border of, essentially the eastern border of Israel, they sent 12 spies to check out the land. Ten of those spies came back and they said, this land is awesome. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. We want to go in there, but there's a problem. The land is full of giants, and these giants are so big that we feel like grasshoppers next to them. There's no way we can conquer this place. It would be much better for us to get rid of this Moses guy and go back to Egypt and be slaves. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, if God is with us, and we know that he is, then he's going to help us take this land. He promised it to us. But the people ignore God's miracles. They turn their backs on Joshua and Caleb, and they refuse. They refuse to enter the promised land. God is understandably very angry with them. And so he says, all of you who are refusing to enter my promised land, who are ages 20 and over, will not see it. And for the next 40 years, he leads them through the desert, through the wilderness, as that generation dies off. Only Caleb and Joshua, of all of those people aged 20 and older, actually get into the promised land. Our story picks up after these 40 years of wandering. The new generation has followed God's command and conquered most of the promised land. And now that conquered land is being divided up among the tribes of Israel. The first thing we're going to see is that God invites us to believe his promises. And we read this in Joshua chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. A delegation from the tribe of Judah, led by Caleb, son of Kephunneh, the Kenizzite, came to Joshua at Gilgal. Caleb said to Joshua, Remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me when we were at Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave an honest report, but my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. 
For my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that day, Moses solemnly promised me, the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever, because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. Now, as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive and well, as he promised for all these 45 years since, God, since Moses made this promise, even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Today, I am 85 years old. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me out on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You will remember that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak living there in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land, just as the Lord has said. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave Hebron to him as his portion of land. For 45 long years, Caleb's been hanging on to God's promise that he would receive the land that he had walked on while spying out the promised land. Every year he gets older, and every year there are fewer and fewer people in his generation as they die off. Every year it seems that the promise is less likely to be fulfilled, and now he's 85 years old. But in spite of appearances, Caleb trusts God that he's going to fulfill his promise. Now, this is not trust in a vacuum. This is trust rooted in years of deliberate choices to trust God. Just like working out in a gym develops your physical muscles, so working out and clinging to God's promises in the face of difficulty builds our faith muscles. And Caleb's faith muscles are strong. They're strong because of a number of things. According to Jewish tradition, while Caleb was spying out the promised land, he split from the other 11 spies to go visit the graves of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the founders of the Jewish religion. And those graves were located in the city of Hebron. This points to his reverence for God and his desire to be with the God of his fathers. After spying out the land, he could have chosen to side with the ten negative spies, or he could have just kept his mouth shut and stayed in the background. But he exercises his faith muscle, and in the face of ten other spies giving a bad report, he stands up, raises his hand, and says, no, we can take it. During the 40 years of wandering in the desert, he could have forgotten the promise, but he exercises his faith muscle, and he clings to that promise that God gave him. Finally, during the five years of conquering the promised land, he could have sat in his tent. He was 80 years old. But I don't get that picture. I get the picture of him exercising his faith muscle, stepping out in faith and going to battle. Where do I get that? Because notice that he said, I am as strong now as I was as a spy, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. Those are the words of somebody who knows from experience what he can do. He was out in the battle at the age of 80 with a sword. He knew that he was still strong because he exercised his faith muscle and stepped out in faith. God made a promise to Caleb, inviting Caleb to continue to believe in him in spite of the circumstances around him. In our family, 
we give our boys a small allowance every week. It's just a little something. They can spend it however they want to, but we do put three requirements. The first is that they put a third of it aside for giving. The second, that they put a third of it aside for some long-term future savings. And then they can spend the rest however they want to. Now, unfortunately, Kim and I, we often forget to give the boys their allowance for weeks at a time. I guess we're unintentionally giving them an opportunity to exercise their faith muscles. But at any rate, the boys don't really seem to mind because we have a calendar in a public place. And every time we pay them their allowance, we check off the Sunday of that week. So we can easily, they can easily keep track of how much allowance they have coming to them. And then the second thing is it's a lot more exciting to receive three weeks of allowance than it is to receive one week. It kind of builds up, and so it feels like a big payout, like they've hit the jackpot. But one of my boys has been recently playing Pokemon with some friends. Now, my, my son, my oldest, is 10, and I have become convinced that Pokemon is like crack for 10-year-old boys. They just can't stop playing Pokemon. But, of course, playing Pokemon builds a desire to have the cards so you can win. But to get the cards, he needs the money. And to get the money, well, the easiest way to get the money is to actually go to mom and dad and say, look, you promised me an allowance. Where is it? And so that's what my eldest has been did two weeks ago. He spent most of the week reminding us gently and not so gently that we had allowance money that we hadn't paid up and that it was time to kind of make good on our promise. So we did. We did. And he, he got his Pokemon cards, and he's been playing and having a great time. But that is a great picture of how we can approach God. God has made promises, and we can go to God and say, hey, these are the promises you've made, and I'm trusting for you to fulfill them. So what promises has God made to you? What promises? Now, I do have to throw in one little caution here, and that is that I'm a sinful human being, you're sinful human beings, and we can easily think that God has promised something that he hasn't. We can either do that because we wish that he would do something for us or because we misinterpret what he's said. My boys will do that to me constantly because they're sinful little human beings too. They, may, they act like I've made promises that I haven't. So when I say what promises has God made to you, it's very helpful if you have a couple of verses that you're hanging on to, that you're clinging to for dear life. And then it's also very helpful if you share those verses with other maturing Christians and ask for their feedback to make sure that you're interpreting them correctly. That's two little checks. So what promises has God made to you? And then secondly, how are you exercising your faith muscle in the midst of difficulty? How are you behaving like Caleb to trust God over 40 or 45 years of not seeing that promise fulfilled? The next thing that Caleb shows us is that God invites us to boldly act on his promises. And we see this in Joshua 14, verse 12, and then skipping on to chapter 15, verse 13. So starting in Joshua 14, 12. Caleb said, So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You will remember that as scouts we found the descendants of Anak living there in great walled towns. 
But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land, just as the Lord said. So Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave Hebron to him as his portion of land. And then Joshua chapter 15, verse 13. The Lord commanded Joshua to assign some of Judah's territory to Caleb, son of Jephunneh. So Caleb was given the town of Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, which had been named after Anak's ancestor. Caleb drove out the three groups of Anakites, the descendants of Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the sons of Anak. From there, he went to fight against the people living in the town of Deber, formerly called Kirith Sefer. Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kirith Sefer. Othniel, the son of Caleb's brother Kenaz, was the one who conquered it. So Aksa became Othniel's wife. Now, there are a few questions that pop into my mind as I read this passage. The first is, who are these descendants of Anak? I couldn't find out very much about them, but the least that I could find out is that they were a race of giants so large that those original spies felt like grasshoppers. Picture Goliath, like nine feet tall, I guess. The second thing that I noticed from this passage is that notice that not only are the people giants, but they're living in walled cities on the tops of hills. So picture yourself as Caleb with your sword running up the hill to attack Hebron. When you finally make it to the top of the hill, you've got a wall to go through. When you go through the wall, now you've got the giant to conquer. This does not sound like good odds to me. But by this time, Caleb's faith, his faith muscle, has been so strongly developed that he is able to acknowledge the reality of how difficult this task is and at the same time acknowledge the truth that God is who he is. If the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land just as the Lord has said. Acting on God's promises is no easy task. It takes work. So often I think we picture God's promises like a little Christmas present wrapped up and put in a little bow and all we have to do is open it up gently. That is not what Caleb experienced. Caleb experienced running up a mountain, going through a wall, and killing a giant. He worked hard to take what God had promised him. And he invited others to help him do that. A friend of mine, actually a friend who's just leaving staff with crew, um, began hunting for a teaching job this past spring. He felt that God was calling him to leave staff with crew and go into teaching middle school history. And so he started sending out resumes to, to, um, to high schools here in the Boston area. He sent out resumes, no response. He sent out more resumes, still no response. Sent out even more, still no response. And he remembered Jesus' promise in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 30 through 33. Jesus said, if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? 
These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So my friend, knowing that God had promised to care for him and his family, continued to work hard, sending out resumes, trusting that somewhere out there was the job that God had prepared in advance for him. Now, in his ideal world, he would have lined up this job about mid-June, because in mid-June, he headed out with a group of other crew staff and a bunch of students involved with crew on a mission trip to South Africa, where they worked tutoring some kids in a slum. And he hoped to have that job lined up so that he would feel comfortable when he was overseas, and also because he knew that when he was overseas in South Africa, it would be a little difficult for him to respond to, say, interview requests. But that didn't happen. He had a chance to exercise his faith muscle even more than he had hoped. And it wasn't until he came back the middle of July that he was hired. Now, that may not be, well, let's just say, until he was hired. And tomorrow, tomorrow he is leaving. He's going to Texas to begin a job as a history teacher. He worked hard because he knew that God would provide. It was kind of like he was engaged in this little Easter egg hunt, working hard to find where God had hidden the job for him. But he still had to work for it. And he did so because he trusted that God would provide for him. So how is your hard work demonstrating that you're trusting Jesus? How is your hard work demonstrating that? So far, we've seen that God invites us to believe his promises. We've also seen that God invites us to boldly act on his promises. Finally, we see in the life of Caleb that God invites us to be generous as we experience his promises. Joshua 15, verses 18 through 19 says this. When Aksa married Othniel, she urged him to, to ask her father for a field. As she got down off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what's the matter? And she said, give me another gift. You have already given me land in the Negev. Now, please give me springs of water too. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. What a dry passage. And yet, I think this is packed with meaning for us. The first question that pops into my mind is, why does Aksa ask Caleb for springs of water? This is, it's odd that a woman would approach a man in this culture and ask for something. So why doesn't her husband do it? Well, I couldn't find any good commentaries on this, but the best that I could find Mere speculation was that her husband, Othniel, didn't want to appear ungracious to Caleb. After all, Caleb had just given him a wife and given him land. It would be rude to ask for more. But Aksa knows her father, and so she is bold in asking him because she knows he's generous. There's also a very practical reason for her to ask. Um, Modern-day Hebron is dry. In fact, modern-day Hebron gets as much rain, less rain in a year than we do in Woburn in an average month of March. That's how dry it is. And so for her to ask was simply her saying, God, uh, Dad, 
you've given us something, but it's going to be pretty difficult for us to live there. Could you give us a little more? And now notice how Caleb responds. He could respond by saying, you rude woman, but he doesn't. He could have responded by saying, you asked for a spring? Okay, here's a spring. He doesn't. He says, you asked for a spring? I'll tell you what, I'll give you two. He is super generous with her. Now, this is a big deal, but you may not realize it as you initially read this passage. After all, the passage just says, so Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. There's no commentary. There's nothing. So how do I know this is a big deal? First of all, it's because if God mentions it, it's a big deal. He only puts in the Bible what is necessary for you to know. The second reason is because God records the exact same story in Judges, an entirely different book of the Bible. It says exactly the same thing. And so if being mentioned once is a big deal, being mentioned twice is a really big deal. God wants you to sit up and take notice to this. So why does God make a big deal? I think it's because he's bragging on the generosity of Caleb. God wants you to notice how exceedingly generous Caleb is. How do I know he's generous? Well, here, this, this incident here, but there's another spot where Caleb is over-the-top generous. There are two towns that are mentioned that Caleb conquered, Hebron and Deber. He gives both of them away, both of them. Later on, you find out that Hebron is the primary city that he conquered, the one that had the, the giants living behind walled cities on the top of hills. He gives it to the priests who didn't have their own land. And that city, the city of Hebron, becomes one of six cities of refuge. Now, a city of refuge in ancient Israel was a spot where you ran for your life if you had accidentally killed somebody else. If you accidentally killed somebody in ancient Israel, their family had the right, should they choose to exercise it, to kill you in return. Caleb donated a city that became a spot of refuge for those who had accidentally killed others. They could run to that city and be safe. And then the city of Deber, the one that Othniel conquered, that one Caleb also gives to the priests so they would have a spot to live. So God had promised Caleb land, and for 45 years, Caleb had held on to that promise. At 85, he was able to act on that promise, and he conquered the land that God had promised him. Hand-to-hand -hand combat with giants. And what does Caleb do? He gives it away. He lets that land flow right through his hands to someone else. How in the world could Caleb do this? I think it's because what is said of Sarah and Abraham in Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, is also true of Caleb. Listen to this. All these people at Sarah and Abraham died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. 
Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. In the case of Caleb, if they had longed for the country that they had just conquered, they could have held on to it. But, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Imagine for a moment that you're a northerner living in the south during the American Civil War. You're kind of trapped down there. You can't make it back north. You've been living there for a while, so all of your money is tied up in Confederate currency. But it's getting close to the end of the war, and you realize the north is going to win this thing. And when they do, my Confederate money is going to be worthless bits of paper. What would you do? If you're wise, you will take this Confederate money and you will buy as much northern U.S. dollars as you possibly can so that you are ready for the defeat of the South. Sure, you'll hold on to a little bit of this Confederate money so that you can survive, but you're going to put most of it in U.S. dollars. In the same way, we aren't able to take our money with us into heaven but we can convert it into heavenly currency. We can send it on ahead. How? By generously participating in the three things that last forever, God, his word, and the souls of people. God has blessed you. God has blessed me. How do I know? I know because you're here today. Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, has this to say. If you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house or an apartment, and have a reasonable, reliable means of transportation, you are among the top 15% of the world's wealthy. If you have any money saved, a hobby that requires some equipment or supplies, a variety of clothes in your closet, two cars in any condition, and live in your own home, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthy. I find that sobering because my nature is to look around at the people around me and say, I don't have as much as that guy. I feel poor. And yet when I broaden where I look, I quickly realize I myself am in the top 1%. I only think I'm poor because I'm comparing my wealthy self to the uber-wealthy that surrounds me. So, why has God blessed me? And why has God blessed you so generously? Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, says, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. There's a picture slide that should come up next. When it comes down to it, God has promised us, has prospered us, so that we can be pipes, not sponges. A pipe takes water from one place and passes it somewhere where it's more needed. A sponge absorbs water and becomes bloated. So, since God is inviting you to give, where might you consider giving? Remember that I just mentioned that there are three things that last forever. God, his word, and the souls of people. 
I would highly encourage you, strongly encourage you, urge you to give to things that bring people into relationship with God through his word. Start with your church, wherever that happens to be. It's probably here because you're here tonight. But wherever it happens to be, because you know that your church cares for the souls of the people you know and love. What about things like medical research and helping the poor? Well, let's be honest. There are lots of people in the world who are passionate about seeing different medical advances and giving to that or for helping the poor in different ways. But the pool of people who are motivated and able to give to eternal things is much smaller. If you want to help the poor, why not seek out a reputable Christian ministry that seeks to meet not only the physical needs of the poor, but also their spiritual need as well? So, since God is inviting you to give, how much might you consider giving? Well, in the Bible before Jesus, tithing is always mentioned. And tithing is just giving away a tenth of your income. In the Bible after Jesus, tithing isn't mentioned so much. Instead, phrases like generous giver and cheerful giver and sacrificial giving are used. You see, tithing is like the training wheels on a bicycle. You put training wheels on a bicycle to help the child learn how to balance, to master balancing on a bike. And when you learn how to balance on a bike, you take the training wheels off. But you never stop keeping your balance when the training wheels are off. It would be silly to take the training wheels off a bicycle and then push the thing around saying, I don't need training wheels anymore. What good is that? The discipline of tithing helps you practice being generous. Once you master the skill, the discipline of, being, of tithing, of being generous, you no longer need to tithe. Why? Because you're generously giving away more than a tithe anyway. That's what tithing does. It helps us to be generous. So here's the challenge, the application. If you aren't currently tithing, start by giving away just 1% of your income. Can you give away 1% and live on the 99% and just see what happens? Then see what happens if you give away 5% and then see what happens if you give away 10. If you currently tithe, what happens if you were to bump that up to 15 or 20%? What, what would happen? And then if you currently more than tithe, what, were you, what if you were to aim for doing a reverse tithe? Reverse tithe is living on 10% and giving away 90%. Craziness. But I wonder what would happen if you were to invest that much in eternity. Of course, there are lots of other scenarios like, I'm in debt. Should I tithe? And I don't feel called to give to a particular thing. Well. There are a bunch of recommended books out there that I carefully selected because they have strongly influenced how I think about money. There's one of them that I definitely want to point out to you. It's actually an article, not a book, and it was written by my wife about 20 years ago when she was a student. It was an article written by her for Worldwide Challenge, 
uh, magazine. It's still the featured article 20 years later on stewardship. I find it challenging reading through it. So Caleb could have been a sponge. He had waited many, many, many years for God to fulfill his promises. And he worked hard to see God's promises fulfilled. But he chose to be a pipe. God prospers us to increase our standard of giving. But I want to be a sponge. I want to suck up God's provision and use it on myself. But God is calling me to be a pipe, passing out my wealth on the 99% who are not nearly as wealthy as I am. Remember my great aunt, the one who said she wanted to partner with me? <clears throat> She's in heaven with Jesus right now and with my grandmother. On the way home from my grandmother's funeral, she was killed in a car accident. Having never experienced what she said she wanted to experience, partnering with me in ministry. I think my aunt was generous, but I wonder how many times over the last about 20 years she was a sponge and not a pipe and missed out on what God wanted to provide for her. I'm excited that she is in heaven, but I am sad that she's not experiencing what she could have experienced had she been a pipe. But the good thing is, the good news is, that Jesus can make sponges like me and like you into pipes like Caleb. Will you step off the next big thing treadmill, turn your back on being a sponge, and with God's help, become a pipe for Jesus?